I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to episode 160 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago, I gave up my life's dream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. On this episode of the podcast, a proper, proper world exclusive for episode 160. In the dynamic world of music, a few trailblazers stand out. Those people who have reshaped the industry with their audacious ideas, their unshakable passion. Andy McDonald. Yes, we tracked him down, folks. I'm as shocked and amazed as you are. Andy McDonald, the maverick behind Go Discs, Independiente record labels, is undeniably one of those people. This fella has an incredible knack for spotting raw talent, an unwavering commitment to artistic authenticity, and Andy wielded his magic wand to transform the British music scene. We'll hear how his discovery of the jam really changed his life. His journey in the music industry, starting out with a strong passion for discovering and nurturing talent. You'll hear the story of the match that lights the fuse that leads him to go discs. And to some key signings, we're talking Billy Bragg, the House Martins, we'll talk the Lars, and of course, Paul Weller. That debut solo album, Wildwood, Stanley Road, and the biggest success for sales in Paul Weller's career. We're talking the jam, we're talking the Style Council. This was next level stuff. You'll hear about Independiente, Days of Speed, Illumination. And it's not too high praise to say that those Go Discs releases, this music, this discovery of a songwriter, a musician that has connected so deeply with me for over 30 years now changed my life. So this is a real delight, a world exclusive Andy McDonald on the podcast. Let's get into it. Andy, thank you for joining me. Uh, pleasure to be here, Dan. Looking forward to having a chat. 
I have to say, when I came up with this crazy idea nearly three years ago now to come up with this yeah. podcast, your name was right up there at the, at the very top of the list, my friend, because my discovery of Weller was the Go Discs period. It was that first Go Disc release, Aha, Oh Yeah. And I've got yeah, it here. Look. Yeah. Here we are. Look at this. Yeah, Still got it. God, that takes me back. Well, over 30 years that is now. Yeah, 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 yeah. 30th <laughs> anniversary of Wildwood this year, yeah. Amazing. Mad. So we're going to dig into all these memories. I'm so looking forward to this. Let's kick off with your love of music and where this comes from. And we'll link it into Weller because I'll have to ask you about the jam because I would guess the same time period in terms of you being a teenager would have been the punk explosion, I guess. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so, well, yeah, maybe a little bit before that. I mean, I, I was one of those kids whose parents loved music. But opera and so I got this sort of a bit of jazz coming in. My mum used to play opera around the house every Sunday. And I got a violin stuck in my hand when I was eight. So I'd sort of played in local orchestras. Badly hated that thing, but it got you into the world of like, this is music. And you sit down with like a bunch of other people and create something together. Um, and so I did that for about four years. And then I, then I picked up a, semi-acoustic guitar when I was 12 and that was it I was off like just playing you know loved it used to spend every weekend in record shops buying whatever you could afford so um, I used to kind of I lived up north so I used to travel on a little train into Sheffield and you'd buy your vinyl and you'd I mean generally we used to buy that one really good thing and then you'd just buy the cutoffs and stuff that didn't have sleeves and just go through as much as you could. So I did that for like from 12 till probably 18, played in bands at college and stuff, played either bass or rhythm guitar. And then I saw a band that kind of just really summed it all up for me. And that was the jam playing at the village bowl down in Bournemouth. And right. they were just amazing because that whole era, I kind of liked the pistols and what they were about, but it just, it was never something you know, just like great songwriting and great lyrics and melodies that you'd linger with you forever. The jam had all of that going on, but with like this ridiculous amount of energy. So when you're a kid in your late teens, that's like a really compelling thing, right? Cliche to say it changed my life, but it was a huge impact. You know, I used to like some of the other bands around that. The Clash had their elements, but, you know, the jam were just consistently brilliant songwriting all the way through it. So that was kind of my number one and, and just the sharpness of the whole thing. And, you know, if you play guitar, you recognize when someone throws shapes in a brilliant way. Do you know what I mean? And Weller's always had that. So I, you know, there's a bit of a transformational gig, that one for sure. Love it. Oh, wow. That's brilliant. Well, you, and the, the, the look and the energy combined, really, the image is great, but the energy of that band coming off the stage is just, and I do think it, when I look back, cause I was, you know, I, I was too young, but when I look back at those early days as well, the movement, the live wood period and all that, that energy seems the same. That kind of obviously it's, is the same fella, but we're yeah. like 20, 10, 15 years later. It's, it's nuts. I mean, every time I see Paul on TV or every gig, like he puts as much and more into it than he did then, I think, you know? Yeah. It's, it's really funny because when, it was a it was a strange thing for me to to sign a deal with him because I was like I think I wandered around for about three or four months going fuck me we've signed Weller <laughs> obviously because like if you're a fan of someone it's like um, you know there's a bigger burden on you because when you know someone's that good and they've met that much in your life and the lives of you know millions of other people as well you kind of have to get it really right mm. and it was a strange period I think really because Paul had done so well so young. And two different stylistic, very, you know, noticeably different. And it's brave to do that. 
you know, record companies have this theory that, well, you've just got to stick to what you're good at, which is bullshit, really, because, like, if you've got something else inside you to come out, if it's film music or instrumental music, whatever it is, you, you, that's part of the process. You have to be allowed to express that, and that takes you to the next stage of what you're going to do. That was the thing for me. Paul had recorded that first album, just Paul Weller, you know, the one with the gatefold sleeve without a whole yeah on it, which still sounds amazing, right? Yeah, it's such a such, such a tune. I think a lot of like journalists, there are some good ones, but some are dicks, right? And you know, I think a lot of them were like slighted because he how dare you break up the jam, you know? Um, but that's like that's his choice. It's his, his life to do what he wants to do, and that's his, his artistic expression. Really, there was definitely that perception back in those like the late seventies, eighties that as a, a musician in your thirties, you're washed up, you're done. And I think Paul said this yeah. himself at the time, quoted in interviews. As, you know, so a guy in his thirties making music was not a thing, was it? I think it's it's difficult because like just the 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 bare process of writing something, particularly when you you're someone who has a, a poetry about their lyrics, you know which he very much has, when you're putting it out there, you know, like it only really matters if it matters to you, if you're proud of the work yourself, but it is going to get commented on. And it's very wounding. You know, I see other people working in different artistic spheres and it's like, you know, how, how dare someone come in and fucking put the big club of a boost all over something, you know? It's like it's there, it's been created and crafted for a reason. And it's funny you mentioned that trap because there was a there was a really you know, like Spinal Tap, you know, remember there's when they came out, there's, there's a this famous scene where they're talking about, I forget what it was called, but it was something sandwich. And the reviewer just said, Spinal Tap, whatever the title was, shit sandwich. <laughs> it was just this, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. this ignorant Luddite commenting on something that was beyond them. And there was a really sort of scathing review about a one word review about that particular track, which we all just went like, okay, now we've got to, there's a, there's a real perception thing that needs to be broken down here, you know. But, uh, you know, I think the thing is that my memories of that, that first album, Paul and his dad came in and they were like, we're just going to start small again, you know, just play clubs, going to do north, south, east, west of London, build it up, get close to an audience again, which again is what he did when he did the Livewood tour. He came in, he said, I'm just going to take an acoustic guitar out there, just me, just want to sit really close to an audience. Oh, this was uh, Days of Speed, wasn't it? Yeah. Days of Speed, yeah, exactly. Sorry. Um, and I went to see him over in the Horticultural Halls in Brussels and it was brilliant. You know, again, it's just that discovery of you know, when the songs are really stripped down like that. But I think that was the thing. And they just, uh, you know, the, the best thing you can do when you work with someone as good as Paul is just like, listen to what they're saying and understand their world and what, what they, you know, what fires them up, the things they don't like. I can remember having conversations with him when it started going quite well and he was invited on top of the pops. And at first he was like, uh, I don't know if I should be doing this. Like I'm, you know, my, you know, man of my age. And I was like, well, what about like Muddy Waters? Or John Lee Hooker and people like people like proper musicians keep doing it until they're sixty, seventy eight, till they till they, they drop because they can't hold the guitar, right? And he was like, "Yeah, maybe." It was a bit of a to and fro, and he eventually said, "Well, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I'll go on and do it, but it's got to be live. I'm not an actor. It's got to be a live gig." So we had to negotiate with the show, the BBC show, Top of the Pops. It's just more hard work for them, you know, to get a live sound guy and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, he's not an actor. So he's like a musician. So he went on and was really good. During, during the, the, after the run-throughs, it was like, I was, you know, so you're like three or four stages there. And one act comes on, does their thing. The other act is, you know, on the stage ready to follow on. 
And um, I sort of pulled pitch to Paul because I thought it was important just to, I do think as there are certain shows that just are such a piece of British cultural history, you're kind of exempt from any criticism by being on them. But most artists correctly would go like, yeah, but I've got to sort of be in this mixture of bullshit as well. You know, there'll be some good things and some that are ridiculous. He was standing on the stage and I was, I've, you know, had a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, yeah, but this is it's still a very credible show. You know, there's lots of, lots of, you know, you think of the pe- people who've been on there for over the last 20, 30 years. And we, he was waiting to go on, the, I think it was two acts before him. It wasn't Mr. Blobby, but it was someone like that. It was like a Jesus, <laughs> dressed up like a pantomime, whatever, you know. And he just looked at me and went like, yeah, very credible. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a journey to go discs and get there. So you've learned the guitar. I guess there's a bit of a dream of like actually the bands you you want to succeed at that yourself. But at some point you take a detour into the press office at Stiff Records. I mean, to be honest, I can play guitar a bit, but I'm, I, you know, it just that it, w- it wouldn't have been a thing I'd have been brilliant at. But I I think what's been useful for me and I hopefully helpful for some of the musicians I've worked with is that I went off and studied law and I can do a contract and I can put a balance sheet together so I can do some business stuff. I, it's not just like, I mean, everyone's got their own take on music. You know, you can understand it however you want to understand it, really. But I, I think it's so important because it's like one of the things that happens in any society that, you know, it gets you closer to the gods, doesn't it? You know, it's like it's a beautiful expression of humanity to be able to connect. Yeah. I'm not a very visual person. I like the odd film, but I could stand in an art gallery and be a bit, yeah, I'm sure, you know, it's, it just it doesn't really fire me up that much. But I listen to music and it just takes you to a different place. And it's one of the few things that, you know, can carry you through tragedy. It can carry you through really difficult times. It can elevate you. It can inspire you. It's a really exceptional, exceptional art form, really, for me. It's the most direct one. So if you have that... If you understand something about the process, there was there was one songwriter who I was I was chatting to, and you know they said something that stuck with me always, and they said, yeah, but the, the, putting the album together, it was like a real journey because I'd sort of wrote this track, that's like the grandfather song, and then there was another one that was related to it, so that and they just went through the whole album and said like that's the grandfather, that's the where the, the whole thing came from, and then there's the mum and dad over here, and just described these songs as human beings. And it just really made sense to me that I thought, well, Christ, you know, when you think about it, if you're lucky enough to be a parent, you know what you feel for your kids. But having a song is just another expression. It's another thing that you produce that you put out into the world. So the relationship that the writer has got with that is so, so, so close. And you have to respect the hell out of that, really. And when you do that, you have to be really careful that you don't, fuck it up by you know there's a lot of people in the music business who think they're creative but they're not like musicians get music on a different level really mm. you know even people who are really good producers musicians it's, it's you know they just understand stuff really good ones you know and he's dead Paul's he's just obsessed with music whether it's his own or other people's you know so I think you just you you have to be really careful around that and it's a bit like you you've got a duty if you're an A&R guy working with someone or if you're in charge of any any role that impacts on somebody's creative music and their creative world around that, you kind of have to stamp a ring fence a, a big space around them to do what they want to do. Because if it's a if it's a really pure expression, without people tampering and suggesting things that are just going to waste time or are going to d- diminish something, if you allow it to be really purely expressed, 
it goes into someone's ears when the listener hears it, it's pure. And it has a lot more value because of that, you know. And I think that's the thing for me has always been the thing I've tried to do with artists. And he's like the best one you could ever work with for that because he knows what he's doing. He's, you know, confident. To be honest, a lot of the time, he'd occasionally just say, what do you think about this? But he, he's so self-sufficient. It's very flattering to be asked. The first time when he had um, finished the majority of the songs for Wildwood, gave me, like, I think it was 12, 11, 12, 13 songs at the time. And there were, you know... I think eight brilliant, brilliant, brilliant songs. And his songs tend to go from very good to legendary, last forever kind of thing. And I thought there were two songs that were good, really, really good. But, um, you know, there was some, there was another thing to happen. And I was like, really going like, how the hell am I? Well, it's a difficult conversation to approach. How am I going to do it? And then I was at home one evening, the phone went. It was like, Andy? I was like, yeah, it's Paul. What do you reckon? Anyway, what I think is um, I, need, I need another three songs. I've got one I've written already. I've got the studio time booked. I'm going to go and put everything down. I was like, excellent. <laughs> you did that to have the conversation. Yeah, because like he's... He knows. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, it's a difficult thing, isn't it? When, you, when something's, you know, to get some distance to evaluate a body of work that you've created. But there's nobody in a better position to do it than the person it comes out of. So that was always, that was kind of the way that our relationship worked, really. I just let him get on with it, you know. Yeah. And then from a record company point of view, you try and just back it as much as you can. And we used to put those records out there, all of them really, you know. But I can remember in particular with Wildwood and then with Stanley Road, we just wanted to kind of, you know, just you're, you're so proud of what the guy's doing that you want to just go like, actually, there's a lot of stuff going on here. But like, check this out. There ain't a weak moment on it. Every song's brilliant, you know, and that's when you have a real pride in the the people that you're working with and the work they're doing. I think that's that's the role of a record company and what it should be really. And it can only happen if it's if you've got a lot of time and a small number of artists to focus on. I, th- I hope that's what Paul got. Some some of the stuff he got out of it was just like, okay, no one's no one's being a dick and suggesting ridiculous things. I'm sure we did at times without realizing it, but um, there was such a lot of goodwill towards him as a person. Um, right throughout the company because the first kind of you know that whole getting to know the record company the artist i mean paul and his dad john they sort of just bump into the record company they'd speak to the kid on the reception desk the same as me or whatever they're really like regular people and that's not always the case some artists um but they just used to come in and make everyone a cup of tea and sit down and just chat so you're working for a friend right that was something i thought was just really exceptional there are other artists who are like that travis fran healy was very similar really lovely 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 guy but just no airs and graces and just like look we're all in this together let's go off and you know have some fun doing it and do it really 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 well the interesting thing is so when weller arrives at godis godis is around 10 years old at that point yeah. so you, you start 83 and as what like a 22 year old man i think because you always had that kind of understanding of this is how this is the label i want to run because that's quite a visionary thing to go this is how i want to treat artists and as a young man isn't it uh i think it is i mean i the, the, there was one no names no pattern on that but i got a job at stiff for 11 months and in the first two weeks I was there, there was someone quite senior in the company who set me off on this task to do something, right? And I was kind of, I'm not really sure what this is all about, but I know where I'll go. I'll go to the person who wrote the song. So I looked on the 
label copy where you have all the information about the song, length of song, musicians, producers, etc. So I, I rap this particular musician and said, like, what do you think about this? You know, what's, what's, what's really in your mind about it? I want to try and reflect what you're thinking. So I did that, created this piece of work, went and sat down with the guy who'd asked me to do it, the more senior person, and he just kind of had this look on his face and said, you've been speaking to the fucking band, haven't you? I was like, yeah, of course. <laughs> Where else do you go? Let's speak to the postman or what, you know? And I can remember the exact words. It was like, the thing you've got to learn, son, musicians know fucking nothing. And that for me, like as a enemy reading guitar player, sitting down there, really feeling really lucky to get a gig because I'd been out of work for seven or eight months before. And I just thought, that's fucking terrible. I mean, this is not, it's not like a big corporation. It's a small company, you know, and that's just bullshit. And I left three months later, not specifically because of that. I, the reason I left, I, I, I went to see a band play up in um, at the Bullet Gate in Kentish Town on a Sunday evening. It was pissing it down with rain. And just one of those days where you weren't feeling particularly inspired. But I read this little two-paragraph review of this band in the face. Remember, it's on the right-hand side, just running down, and the band were called Pride. Well, this sounds really interesting, you know. I'll just I'll I'll go and see what they're like. And I went out there, and it was you know they had a sort of seven piece band, two girl singers, played about five or six songs, then broke it down. I said, actually, we're going to just like slim this down now. And we're going to come back. One of the girl singers came to the front, took the lead vocal with a sax, a bass, and I think keyboard, maybe a drummer behind her, because you could hear there was an amazing voice in there out of the three voices that were singing them when they were a seven piece. They came back as a four-piece and just blew you away. And I ran into the office of the following morning, like, you've got to see this. It's, she's so, so talented and they play well. And I, it took me about two months to get the person with the signing decision, you know, power of the label to come and see them at Canvey Island Gold Mine. And they kind of went like, yeah, it's good, but it's not really for us, you know. And I just thought that's it. I went home and designed a logo after that. And it was Sade, you know. So, so that, wow. that was, you know, which I mean, you know, an incredible. The songwriting could have a bit more work on it, maybe, but I mean, she's just an incredible, iconic, beautiful voice. Yeah. God, the last the test of time. But that is, so that was in my first year at this label, and that was the real. Because I can remember just sitting there thinking, right, okay, so I'm nominally a press officer, so I'm running around kind of to Fleet Street and you know Carnaby Street to the Record Mirror and Enemy, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, just sort of. um you know, trying to just get people to, you know, check out bands and listen to them and, and comment well on them. But what I really want to do is work with musicians. So I was running around every night and seeing gigs, right? And that was the first really obvious, huge star in the making that I came across, really. And I can remember just going home thinking, like, hard in my boots, you know, and the bloke said, it's good, but it's not really for us, you know. I just thought, my God, you know, this is... Yeah, that must be so frustrating. You're kind of like, okay, well, well yeah. I set up a label because of it. I really did. I went home and I just thought, fuck it, if you can't get someone something as obvious as that, fair hearing, then what's the point, you know? So I went up and set up Go Discs. I was, I was lucky because my mum had just sold a house up in Sheffield. She made 15 grand profit and she gave half to me and half to my sister. So I'm sitting there with seven and a half grand and I thought, well, do you know what? I'm, I'm living month to month at the record company. Suddenly I've got a little pot of gold. So I'm going to use half of it to set up a record company and half of it I'll live off and see what happens. You know, wasn't married, didn't have a you know long-term relationship, no kids. Probably a pretty nuts thing to do, really. When you think back, it's hard to get a job in the music business. And I've been lucky enough to be given this opportunity. 
I, I wouldn't say it's not arrogant. It wasn't like, hey, I can do this better. But I just sort of saw from those two things, like, I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do here. You know, and it's like, if you can't help a musician get a gun, it didn't matter because she got a, a, a deal with CBS probably four or five months later, I think. But that that was one of the, the you know, a bit of the fuel that set the whole thing going, really. I love that. I was so funny because my, my journey into radio was a similar thing where I, you know, I really wanted to do radio. And it was only when my mum went to his parents' evening at school and the teacher was like, he's got this ridiculous idea that he wants to do radio. <laughs> Needs to think about a proper, you know, an actual career because that's not going to happen. My mum was like, well, can, why can't it happen? That's the thing. Yeah, but- and then that made me more bloody determined to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, books you love, that's the way, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Let's talk about the, so the first signing is not, yeah. I mean, it's not a bad one. Billy Bragg, right? Um, he, he, Billy was in the first year. The first one was a group called The Box. So there was a band in Sheffield called Clock DVA who split and they were just trying to get a deal together. So I just put out a five track 12 inch that sold enough to then pay for making an album that then paid for the next album. And then Billy, I came across in September of that first year, it started in the first week of January, Go Discs, and was originally going to be called Go Records, but there was one in San Francisco, and a Welsh friend of mine, Chrissy Roberts, just said, call it discs, like, getting into compact discs now, it's the way it'll carry you through for the next few years, so we went with that. And then, yeah, I just came across that first record of Billy's, the seven track, which is the songs on there are just amazing songs. Man in the Iron Mask, New England, et cetera, et cetera. And just the songwriting is, I think, phenomenal, you know. So, yeah, we put that out. And it was a strange thing because he'd been signed to a label called Charisma by one guy. The label was struggling and, and not they were just about to fold, actually. So Billy had been signed for nothing, really. And in return for some studio time that he got from Chapel Music, from Jeff Chegman, he got like three afternoons, went in there, stuck down a record, put it together. And the label, because they were so wrapped up with, I think, you know, the receivers and what have you, he just, he was basically selling records at the back of the hall from when he played gigs. He pressed up 1500. No, he pressed up, I think it was 750. The 1500 figure was what I ended up paying Charisma to get him out of the deal because it was a, again one of those lovely conversations where I ran up the head of business affairs and just said look you know I'm not sure really um where did you are to this artist future but I think he's incredible and we'd love to sign him they said no no very very important very important we see him as the way forward for you know young talent it's really important for us and I said well look, let's get to the deal but what would what would be you know we're talking you picked up the phone what what would be the sort of thing you know would it be if I gave you a thousand pounds or something and he said 1500 1500 is a deal. <laughs> so I gave them 1500 quid. And Billy got 500 quid, uh, which he bought a little Roland Cube amplifier with. And I sort of was kind of running out of money then a bit. So I gave him a, a Beatles talcum powder from the 1960s <laughs> and a copy of Motown Chartbusters Volume 3. You know, he, he, he was more than happy with, you know. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, he pays that back <laughs> pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, didn't do too bad. And a phenomenal artist and a brilliant guy. He's been on the podcast. Quickly, I want to talk about the Lars because that was obviously a really key signing. And that was a bit of a sneaky one as well, wasn't it? In terms of signing, it was kind of something where you were reviewing them and then you gave them a duff review to go. Tell me the story on signing the Lars. Yeah. So you're, you're close. It was, um, so Rough Trade used to have a magazine, like a fanzine that came out every month called 
think it was just called the catalogue. And they'd pick like an A&R guy or someone who ran a, a small independent label, give you 20 tapes. There was still cassettes at that stage. So they'd give you 20 cassettes of demos to listen to. And I listened to a few of them. And I think it was the seventh one that came out was the Lars. And I was like, fucking hell. This, you know, it's got Son of a Gun. There she goes. Right. Oh, wow. Looking glass. I mean, just four of the absolute, you know, and I'm sitting there with the journalist there and just going, mm, it's not bad. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to sort of then write up an appraisal of it yourself and give it, you know, it's a bit generic, but you have to give it a, a mark out of 10 for the songs. Right. In fact, there was one for artistic presentation of how the cassette was put together. We seemed a bit, <laughs> really. but songwriting, um, individuality, maybe. So I listened to these and just thought, Jesus Christ, this is phenomenal. You know, it's just got to be, so I'm, I deliberately went like, and you're thinking, well, the band are going to read this. I've got to be relatively positive or you could put them off. But at the same time, every other fucker in a record company is going to re- read this as well. And how do you navigate this? So I kind of found a couple of other ones I could say good things. The the one that got the... They're really nice, a nice band, actually. Um, Lester, who joins um, Norman Cook. In B- oh, right. yeah, on Beats Essential, yeah. So he was a singer in a band called Grab Grab the Haddock, which is an unusual name. And there was some, some good stuff about them. So I made them the stars of that particular 17 or 18 different cassettes that were there. And then there was a gig up at the Everyman Theatre up in Liverpool about four or five weeks later, I think it was, just in the shadow of one of the the new cathedral. And you sort of walked in there. The air was thick with smoke. Everyone's a little kind of wavy and there was no stage. So they came on. You could barely see them. And they're all like five foot, five foot eight. Five nine max, but looking amazing. They got like little kind of, kind of corduroy bomber jackets on and Levi's and just bouncing around. And it was just an incredible, magical gig. And I was lucky enough, I, I found the manager and said, Look, let's go and have a chat afterwards. And we went back to a guy called Rob Swerdlow, who manages quite a few good artists now. And we went back to his house and just smoked weed. And they came down to live to <laughs> London, rather, about. I'm going to say it was like three or four days later. I think it was it was it was really quite quite close from from the gig, and they were just great. You know, they're obviously you know it's a strange journey working with them because <laughs> in and out of studios, nothing came out. Well, yeah, years of recording, re-recording. Eventually, that brilliant debut album comes out. Uh, although I know that I think um, Lee's not Lee Mathers still isn't a fan and is still working on album number two somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, he's got songs. I mean, he's he's a he's an unbelievably talented musician. He really is a, a you could literally, you know, throw a stick of wood and a brick at the guy and he'd make it sing. He's just he's he's an incredible drummer. I don't think I've seen a better rhythm guitarist, really. I don't know. There's just something different going on with the way his relationship with music is so close. Speaking to him about his lyrics, he'd sort of there's a track called Calling All that he wrote. He said yeah, yeah, I was, um, I was, yeah, I dropped some acid and I went down to the Albert Dock and I was sitting there at dawn like with my guitar and just writing. I thought that might have been Liberty Ship because he was watching the sun, the ships go up and down the Mersey. But he wrote this song called Calling All, which is, I mean, it's, it's like a, a tattered street, a battered coast, the wind had gathered like a host and heavy blows came raining down on me. He said, hey, honestly, I don't know where this shit comes from. <laughs> like fucking Shakespeare or something. Like, where, honestly, it comes out and it's like, and I think you like quite a few musicians or songwriters say that, but there's something that happens beyond your staging of it. You can't, you can sit down and put your ass on the seat and 
pick a guitar up and, you know, have a pen and paper, but something's got to come through you, right? And I think there are occasions where it's beyond your own understanding of what's happening. And he would talk about those and go, I mean, look at me, I'm a little scouser. I don't speak like that. It's like Shakespeare. But it's just this incredible poetry that he put down, you know. Remarkable stuff. Edgar Jones has been on the podcast. And he was talking about making music within recent years, but that, that's yeah. never seen the light of day still. But um, he said, again, he was saying, like, just, it's just like another, on another scale. It's incredible. He's phenomenal. Really, really phenomenal. Lovely, really lovely fella as well, you know. Now let's get back to Weller. So we're at the end of the 80s and the Star Council and Weller without a record deal for the first time since he was in his late teens, actually, when you think about it. So here's a question yeah. for you. Would you have rejected that final Star Council album? <laughs> Uh, no, I wouldn't. I'd have, I'd, I would just have put it out and said, you know, but been realistic, you know, so it's a really, really good piece of work. And it was something that needed to come out and it stands the test of time. And it'll, you know, when do you, when do you value or evaluate something 10 years or 30 years or 50 years? You know, there's a famous story in the music business about when Brian Wilson was um, working on a track over in Los Angeles and they'd had some success. He was trying to get this sort of sound that would make this song really special. So he'd been working away and he sort of hired in different session musicians, all the best guys from LA to try and help, you know, find this effect that he was after. And, you know, the A&R guy was down there at the studio going, oh, come on, Brian, last like three weeks now, you know, it's just one track. You've got to move forward. And he's like, I've just got to get this. I've got to capture what's in my mind for it, you know. Went on for another week or so. The head of A&R went down there. Again, he was like, look, I've just got to, you know, eventually the account, the head of accounts went down and said, Brian, you know, this is costing. This is, you know, it's $20,000 or whatever the figure would have been then. They got him stoned, I remember, because they'd all, they were quite a fancy record company capital, I think. They'd all got little Mercedes sports cars they used to zoom around, apparently. <laughs> but anyway, so it ended up with nothing really happening. And eventually he found it and had spent a fortune in those terms, that particular era on this track that came out and was Good Vibrations. <laughs> right. So, I mean, the only answer there is to say, listen, you're a genius and you're trying to find something. Good luck. Off you go. Otherwise, like, the whole culture of that period will be severely diminished, right? So Weller's without a deal and starts playing live again, but he talks about the fact that he he didn't really have his mojo. He puts out Into Tomorrow, which suddenly is kind of him back. He's he's kind of found that love of music again, the love of writing, and that yeah. band are just on fire. And that was on his, like I say, his own label, Freedom High. But So when was your first connection with Paul around that time? I just got a phone call from his dad, from John, who said, look, we're looking, you know, looking around. I think Paul might have said to him, I, I'd met Paul very briefly on a CND march. He was there with Steve White. Just said a, said a quick hello. Didn't really get engaged in a conversation after that. But, you know, he'd be, I guess he'd probably be looking at small labels that he thought were decent homes. Because if you've been in a, you know, treated badly, if someone says, we're not going to put your work out, fuck that. That's just so, I mean, that's bad manners beyond fucking belief, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I'm not going to put your record out. It's really just inexplicable, I think. So I don't, so it's just a phone call. And my memory is we were, we had, we just moved from King Street and Hammersmith to St. Peter's Rose. So it was this kind of newish building, much bigger than we needed. So we got Malcolm Gary's TV company and then the other half. So he did the tube. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Yep. music program. So it was kind of like quite vibey. It was quite an interesting place to be. John and Paul came in and Paul just smoking like 
you know, five fags a, a minute. And just really, I think just first time back in a record company, probably. And we had a really good chat, I thought, for a few hours. And he, he said, well, I'm going to go and think about it. He rang the following day. He said, right, I want to come in and see you. Is that okay? And I said, yeah, yeah, but whenever, you know, and it would have been that day or the following day. And he just came in. And this, again, this, it goes back to if someone is good at what they're doing and they know what works for them, listen to it. If you think you can add something that might be help, then do. But otherwise, get out of the way. And he just came in and said, look, here's, I, I, I'm going to, you know, really, I'm thinking really seriously about, I really enjoyed being here yesterday. I think it could be, you know, we could work well together. But I just want to let you know the things that I've worked for me and things that don't. You know, I'll do some press, but to be honest with you, I've been doing it since I was 18 years old and you, it can be very repetitive and time consuming. So I've got to be very selective about that. I was like, yeah, no problem. I'm not going to act. I just want to play live a lot. And I forget exactly what else he said, but essentially he just came and said, here's, here's what I do well. And this is what I want to do. Are you up for it? And I was like, yeah, totally. Let's just go off and do it. And I think that there's no need to get over-involved in that stuff, is there? If someone clearly knows what they're about and what they're doing, you know, he knows the studios he likes, he knows, knows the people he likes working with, he knows the sounds he's going for, he knows how to get them. What's an A&R guy going to do in there, apart from sit around and, like, steal the oxygen in the studio? There's no point. <laughs> yeah. But there must be a bit fanboy of you as well, as, you know, as the guy who loved the jam going, this is like, a, what a signing this is. Yeah, 100%. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it, it came at a time, I can remember, we were, we'd had some good success. And I think we were a little bit low on energy at the time. And it, when he came in, it sort of just, it took everything up a, a couple of notches. And that's partly because of the stature of the artist that you brought into the label. But it's also, um, he, he would regularly bring me on God, have you heard this? Have you heard that? Have you heard this band? Have you heard that band? He's like having an unpaid A&R guy out there. He's like, oh, check this out. Or he'd bring tapes in and say, like, listen to this lot. Track four is amazing. So you've got this energy. I mean, he just is a really, he's a force of nature. He said about you, I can't remember which interview this was, but I found this in research. He said about you, you walk in and the MD is smoking a spliff and playing the guitar. That's my kind of company. <laughs> that wouldn't, that would have been, you know, that was, we used to smoke a lot of weed, to be honest. That was, a, um, yeah, that's how we used to do it. But like, you know, it opens the doors of perception. You can hear the fairy dust on the, you know, on the mixing mess, <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, we used to do that. I think, I think the exact quote was, you got a spliff on the guy and he's playing with the football. All right. <laughs> we always had a few footballs around there as well. <laughs> and the thing is, that first album was yeah. part financed by the Japanese record label. So what comes to you is pretty much done, I'm guessing. Yeah, completely finished. Pony, Pony Canyon, the name of the Japanese label. He's got such devoted fans over there. So it was kind of an intelligent way to go, you know, I mean, they revere him, really. They've got, I'm sure you know the stories, but there are bars, that are weller bars, you know, that look like shrines to him, you know. So it was That's my office. Good, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it was a really good place to start back. And it's a really, really, really good record. Uh, but you could just see there was, you know, I think, well, for me, Wildwood is like such a classic record. You, I, you listen back to you, you can't, I couldn't, you know, there's nothing that you would want to change at all. It's just this beautiful expression of where he was at the time, right? Well, I've got it here, look, where we are, look, yeah, on the beautiful vinyl. Right. And yeah, I mean, you open up with Sunflower, Can You Hear Us, Holy Man, Wildwood, all the pictures on the wall, Has My Fire Really Gone Out? I mean, it's just yeah. banger after banger, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, right, absolutely, every, every <laughs> one of them, you know. But that's what? the thing, you know, and if people can do that, 
you want them to do it more. But then I think that this is where hopefully a record company, if they're a good one, get involved as you lock into that. Because there's probably a you want to kind of hit as many people as you can who's who will really benefit from it and respect what it is. And there's a level where you can get too commercial and push things a little bit too far. So that that's always the thing to me. You don't want to leave anything on the table. Like you want to just reach as many people as you can. That record was incredible, though, because it, it, there was always something. Like I'm with, I'm with Stanley Road. You sort of, as a record company, you prepare your marketing plans and whatever, and you might be sort of reaching people, whether it's through live events and whatever you surround that with, with press, or maybe there's some television advertising at a particular stage, or you look at the amount of airplay that's coming in, et cetera, et cetera. But that was always, it was always outstripping your expectations. It was always ahead of the game of what we could do. And it was just word of mouth and just the quality of it. It was just running ahead all the time, you know. Same with Stanley Road, it just went. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f***? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas, absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And the key with those two albums as well is Paul's at the Manor in Oxfordshire, this residential yeah. studio recording. Were you down there much or did you just let them get on with it? No, I went a few times. But again, you know, just, you know, make a cup of tea, roll a joint, drive back to London. <laughs> it was not, it was, it was, it was uh, you know, it's just, it's a privilege to be invited along on something like that, really, because it's a delicate balance in a studio. You've got, you know, there's the, if, if the vibe's good, it can be fantastic. And if it, there's one thing that goes wrong, it can fuck everything up, you know, and you're suddenly the whole momentum can disappear. So, no, but Paul used to just get on with it and then say, come down, check out where we are, you know. I understand that album as well is has a really special link for you personally, because you, you met your wife at the album launch party. Was that right? It was the, it was actually the launch party for Stanley Rose, okay. and my wife. And she, I forget why, because well, we just got together really quickly and I proposed to her about three or four months later. And we've been together for nearly 30 years now, you know, 20, 20 wedding anniversary at the end of this month. But this was so, so we would just listen to both of them. But Wildwood was the one she just took him. She's Tanzanian. And she went back to see family over Christmas and took that album with her and just listened to it nonstop. So it's kind of, it's in our, in our story in a big way. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Stanley Road. I mean, it doesn't get much bigger than that one. Huge number one album. And it just keeps selling, keeps selling, keeps selling in yeah. the UK. And interestingly, it doesn't really break globally. And this is one thing that I wanted to chat with you about, about, 
Paul, in terms of outside of the UK? I mean, was that still the Go Discs thing where you were internationally distributing it? And was that a challenge to break him or to get an audience again in the States and down under and other markets outside of the UK? He does well in the States. I mean, he can go over and play to seven or 8,000 people in LA and in New York. He'll, there won't be a, an empty seat, you know, and he can hit most countries in a really good way, in the major cities for sure. I mean, we had a deal that was... We sort of owned the company here, so it was a pressing and distribution deal here and international licensing. So you never quite know because if a record's great, it sort of leads the way. Like I was just saying, it's always outperforming your expectations. And so I don't know if people have said that to me before. Is it too British a sensibility? And, you know, I mean, it's sort of all the Anglophiles go for, obviously, for the UK artists first. I, I wouldn't have a coherent answer for you on that, really. I mean, I asked myself the question, could we have done more? You know, because you're reliant on the goodwill of strangers, really, a little bit. And you can sort of, you know, but I mean, you know, your Dutch record company have got their own priorities. The French record company have got their own French priorities. There's always give and take, really. Off that album, there were like four outstanding singles. Out of the sinking, then we get Changing Man, then we get You Do Something to Me, then we get Broken Stones. It's just like, bang, bang, bang. This, I mean, there's a record label boss. You must be like just <laughs> skipping into the office every day. Yeah, for sure. But maybe, listen, maybe that's the, maybe that part of the the reason that it's that good is if you, when you've got someone who, you know, when is a very driven songwriter, when that is broken a little bit. I mean, I don't, I've never really spoken in depth to Paul over about that, but I would imagine it's not great for your confidence when the people that are putting your records out can say, we're not going to put this out. So that fractures the process for a couple of years, but it creates a vacuum because you don't lose your talent, right? If you're a great songwriter, you're a great songwriter. You've just got to find the circumstances to write great songs. So maybe the fact that he had, I mean, there's so much good work in that period is phenomenal, really. Every B-side is incredible, let alone. Yeah, I used to kind of sit there and just think to myself, like, who else has come out? Because the Beatles have have had this huge global thing, 13 albums over seven years, then split up. But out of the UK, who else is challenging that? And I couldn't find anyone else other than Paul, to be Mm. honest. And I think the fact that he's now done it so well for so long it's ridiculous really i mean it's brilliant that someone just has something to say keeps expressing themselves in a you know really poetic and beautiful ways well the fact that we can get on sunset and fat pop in very recent years and two number one albums and still saying new things is in a 30-year solo career is remarkable isn't it i said to charles reese i bumped into charles reese in an event the other day paul's studio engineer and i said that you were coming on he said ask him about the 1970s seaberg jukebox with Peter Blake's Stanley Road artwork that Andy gave Paul. Oh, that was the, well, the person I got a rid There's a really, really imaginative marketing guy that worked for us called Tony Crean, who is an Everton fan, obviously a scouser. He's the guy who came up with the connection with War Child and had the idea for putting the Help album together for War Child. He's a maverick genius. And one of the things he did when we had put the Portishead album out, Dummy, I mean, he set up a pirate radio station that when people went over the bridge by the House of Commons, he got, you know, a huge um, projection onto the wall where the traffic was stuck saying 94.3, tune into this, and it was playing the album. <laughs> or he'd chain up, um, so they, you know, it's called Dummy, and there were lots of showroom dummies painted 
blue with a P, like the parking sign on the front, which is fine, but he took it to another level and sort of changed some of them up to the, the little aisles in the, the middle of Oxford Street when you cross the road. So there are some amazing photos of the police kind of looking at these <laughs> things and thinking they were terrorists. Trust me. <laughs> so, so that I think that was one of Paul's, well, one of Tony's um, ideas. Just to, he's a huge vinyl fan, so I, you know, he he he'd know more about the specifics of exactly what what went in there. I've seen pictures of the jukebox, but didn't realise. I mean, actually, he says, because it obviously lives at um, Blackburn Studios, he also said, ask Andy about playing cards with John Weller. He may shed a tear. Oh, my God. Uh, they used to like a game of three-card Bravo poker. They, they really did. <laughs> did you ever win anything? <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, had, I had one or two really good um, nights on a UK tour. But, you know, overall, I'd say, like, no. They, they Bless them. I love them. They were such fun people to work with and, and hang out with. Um, with. I think Paul was playing, it might have been Frankfurt or maybe Berlin or something, but he played this really, really good gig. We went back to the hotel, just checking in, getting the keys and stuff, and um, John turned around and said, I fancy a game of cards to you, a little game of three-car brag. We've got this, um, we've got one of the suites upstairs sorted out, so we went up there. We went on till six in the morning. <laughs> and there's John, myself, and Kenny Wheeler, Who's part of the management team was always on the road with them. And Kenny, I can remember, because you know what it's like, you're five in the morning, you're slightly hazy. And I can just remember Kenny, who's like quite a substantial gentleman, and he was wearing a pair of black jogging bottoms. And he'd taken so much cash off me that it looked like he got two saddlebags on. <laughs> he got about 50, well, I won't say well, how much he was. But I had to send some more across, I had to send a check across. And he, bless him, he was really, um, Really, really nice of me. So he ran up and said, Andy, thanks a lot, boy. Uh, yeah, I just bought myself a new extension on that. <laughs> an extension on the side of the house. <laughs> I've cleared <laughs> the mortgage. <laughs> yeah, we had a good setting up in, um, I was tea in the park. There's a definitely a Scottish gig where we went there. I mean, they'd always got a pack of cards, right? And um, there was a, I, it, was, it was after the show, everyone was just having a drink and stuff. It was like an old dance hall. And John pointed to this, the, these red curtains up on the stage said, here, let's get a table up there. So we had to just put, put a card table, seven or eight people playing away. It was like someone from Boardwalk Empire, you know, it was, it was kind of getting, getting fiery, but um, that was always after the gig stuff, you know. <laughs> so now let, let's talk about the end of Go Discs and then what comes next, because again, it features Mr. Weller. The sale to Polygram, that wasn't something you wanted to happen, right? No, it really wasn't. Not least because it was working out brilliantly. It was a lot of fun. We were selling a lot of records. The roster was fantastic. And, you know, you sort of learn things as you go along. So I cut the deal with them after four years of doing it. I did sort of 11 months just through Rough Trade and through Pinnacle, just as a complete independent. We then did a deal with Chrysalis that lasted for three years. They were great. They helped us build up. And then did a deal with Polygram. And, you know, it's a little bit more serious. There's more money on the table for, to go make more records. We knew a little bit more about what we were doing then, I guess. And the con- it was a strange contract in the sense that we kept 51%, sold them a minority share. And at some, uh, def- after five years, after seven years, after nine years, then you'd sit around the table and say, Okay, and I was always like, no, no, we want to carry on, but we want to own it. We want to get the other shares back. So the mechanism that was in place was that 
we had the final rights to outbid Universal as it became by paying an extra 15% on top. But the, critically, they could value the company. Oh, okay. So the reason that we lost control of the company was they put a very high valuation on it. And I was running around speaking to various people, bearded billionaires who set up rocket ships and stuff, just all anyone you could try and find to back you in this new venture. And we couldn't quite get anyone to back us that far. So they priced us out of our own label, which was just awful. I bet. I mean, that's brutal. Heartbreaking. I was just, I'm I'm not like an easy cryer, but I just, I was in floods, man, for like the rest of that evening and set up Independiente the following day, pretty much. You know, it's been like, best way to get around it is just to keep doing it. Just go again. Put something different and just off you go, you know. So then we um, found premises at the drill hall in Chiswick, built a new floor in there. And just carried on. But I was really keen to keep working with Paul. So we did a deal where I sort of A&R'd as much as, you know, because then he had at least had the same freedom and team around him. It wasn't the case of switching over so someone could come and go, right, you've got to do dance music now, mate, or whatever. So then then uh, carried on after that, you know. So the heavy soul period, which would have been with Island and what would have been heliocentric, were you still involved with Paul from an A&R point of view at that point? As much as you that? ever were. Like I right. said, you know, the, the, it was a very kind of light touch kind of A&R approach, really. Because if the, you don't need to be in mixing, then why would you, you know? The first album release for Independiente for Weller was The Days of Speed. We kicked off the podcast talking about that acoustic tour, which yeah. seemed like a massive, like a really brave thing, because he was so out of his comfort zone doing that type of thing from everything I've read of like, actually, this is him, just him, acoustic guitar out on the road. There's no band behind him, whatever. But it was so massively successful, wasn't it? That that tour and then the album as well. Well, again, it was one of those that just kept racing ahead, you know. It was, I think the idea was just put it out and let it find listeners, you know. And it kept going, sold half a million copies and I don't know what the equivalent would be now, but it's it's just it's it's a, it's a proper work of art, isn't it? You know, there's not so many of those that come along. I think future generations will just keep finding that stuff. You know, whether it is a Brian Wilson thing or something that Paul's put out, or you know, it was lovely that he was revisiting the Jam, the Star Council again. He hadn't touched yeah. those songs for a while, and suddenly, like he was embracing for the first time, I think truly, yeah, like that entire back catalogue. Yeah, incredible. Really incredible. Most songwriters, I think, look back at things that they've changed or they'll have a certain association with that period of their lives and stuff. But to be really comfortable with everything that you've done predominantly is remarkable, I think, isn't it, really? Yeah. It's like such a lovely outcome, you know. There were a couple of people I should have mentioned, actually, during the Go Disc years who touched Paul's career in different ways as well, who were, I think, were all employees of you. So Phil Jupiter's was one. He was a runner at Go Discs, right? Well, he was more than that. He sort of, he used to sit and listen to tapes. He did SMA and R for his early days. And then he started doing his shows, you know, little shows, and it just took off really well for him. But he's, he's lovely, but Porky, the poet. That's right, that. yeah. And Pete Mason. Pete Mason's been on the podcast, who was lovely. Yeah, he's great. Simon Dine worked with Paul yeah. Weller from Illumination, which was on your label, but then 22 Dreams in a big way and all that. Simon was 15, doing a fanzine in Portsmouth. And I'm going to remember the name of it, but he used to come to, he used to come to House Martin's gigs or Billy Bragg gigs. And he used to miss his train back to Portsmouth as often as not, so he'd keep on our couch <laughs> at the time. And he was given the nickname because he came from Fairham, just outside Portsmouth. So Paul Heaton nicknamed him Freddie Fairham. So he's known as Fred, Freddie. <laughs> 
for, for 15, 20 years. And yeah, I mean, he's done really well. He's, the, the, you know what? They attracted some really interesting people. Carl Smith from Madness came and did a for a while. It's, it's really good if you've got, you know, musicians in a record company. That's like what you should do, isn't it? So Independiente, again, massive success. I mean, we're not going to have time to go into all the all the artists on the label, but I do want to mention Travis because this tied in with my broadcast career when I was doing breakfast shows. And yeah. we were playing Travis like every morning because that, was it The Man Who? It was, I mean, it's such a massive album. And then The, the Invisible mm-hmm. Band afterwards, which seems to just either be always number one, I kept going back to them. It was just incredible. They, they were so massive, weren't they? It works. If you find good writers and let them do what they want to do, they you get you just get better songs. If they feel comfortable and supported and know that it's going to get a really big push when it's done... And, you know, I, th- I would honestly think that pretty much every musician who's ever put an album out that's worked will have a bit of them going like, Jesus Christ, I did a lot more touring than I wanted to do. But there's something about dignifying the work by going that extra yard, but not the extra extra yard that can can make it a, a souring experience, really. But it's, it's funny because, yeah, I mean, he's, he, again, a really, really fantastic songwriter, Franny, and I heard that first... It was funny because when we still had Go Discs, when they were, they had a band called Glass Onion after the Beatles track up in Glasgow. And Franny had joined late, and there were two brothers in the band. And you could sort of feel there were two sides to the band. There was a very organic sort of, you know, like if you listen to All I Want to Do is Rock, that quite sort of feedbacky, chunky guitar of Andy's. And then there was a sort of more prog rock, I suppose, like sort of lots of keyboardy stuff. There was a keyboard player. And I forget what the other brother did, but it was it was one of those things. It was like there was something that was really appealing about the tracks. But there was something that threw it off, you know. And Fran eventually just sat down and had the conversation and said, "Look, I think we need to go our separate ways." And they got Dougie in, who hadn't played bass at all by then, and suddenly his four friends making music. And they'd been Fran. Fran kept saying, "So I knew we signed to you because like." Our logo was a G and an O for Glass Onion, and you would go. So I just knew that we, you know. <laughs> it's meant such, to be. <laughs> yeah, he dropped an email last week, and he's over in LA at the moment. But um, we've not had any Travis music for a while, have we? We need this. I mean, we'll be writing. I've got to. I've got to get back in touch. We haven't spoken for about six months or so. But um, yeah. he moved from Berlin over to LA. I'm not sure for how long. How did it work with Paul in terms of the, was it an album by album basis? Because when we get to Studio 150, Paul's moved to V2 Records, he's moved to Branson, not not with Independiente. Yeah, was I it- think that was at the end of our, our contracts, after the last records with Independiente. And I'm not sure exactly how, you know what they say about um, like the music business, if you can remember what was going on, you weren't doing it properly. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, what a pleasure and a privilege to work with someone like that, though, you know? You've got the disc behind you, and I can tell from you talking about this has been such a passion as much as a career of releasing and working with these artists and putting their work out and being part of that. Is such This meant so much to you, clearly. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I, I'm lucky in the sense that I kind of think I'm, I get music and the importance of it. Wouldn't be able to make it myself, but I know how important it is. And I've got a set of skills through studying law and being able to do planning and strategizing and things that, that are quite useful. So if you've got the best interests of musicians at heart and you're willing to let them get on and do it, then you can put like a framework around it that makes it probably just a smoother process. You can see when it gets fucked up sometimes where somebody... So with Ocean Colour Scene, you know, Paul slipped me a tape 
from then early days. We were so busy. I mean, they're lovely, lovely lads. They're so nice. And I thought it was fantastic, but we, we just, I knew we couldn't really do it justice. We were mm. so stretched. So the thing that we did was, and it's partly because the experience they'd had, they got signed when they were quite young, I think 18, and they weren't really allowed to do the music as they wanted to do it. It was a case of, we're going to get this engineer and he's going to get this drum sound. We're going to, I think they had to go about three days in a row for this process, this really fucking ridiculous process of uh, <laughs> engineer trying to impose a drum sound on them, which is nothing like their sort of organic kind of slightly bluesy feel about the sounds. They've got very organic stuff. It was a bit machiney. And I think that, you know, if you're 18 and someone's doing that, you just think, what, what am I? Whoa, this is, I mean, it's, it's, it's um, very wounding kind of process. So the thing that happened, and it wasn't just us. So Brendan Lynch, who's done a lot of work with Paul, we'd invested in a 16-track studio. My head of A&R thought it would be a good idea. It ended up being sited over in East London. No one had the time to go there, or we were too stoked to remember where it had been installed. <laughs> so it didn't really get used very much. It got used maybe for two or three months, and then it was stuck in, in my attic. For a long time and i said to them like to ocean color see look just pop bring, bring a van around and take it stick it in your rehearsal room and work away and see what you can get and they they did and they i think probably all the better for it that they just had a really sympathetic guy with a great pair of ears like brendan working with them they made the records they paid a tiny amount of um mixing time it's 30 grand or something to get a record that went out and sold well over a million copies. That was the thing. They had this lovely period where they could curate all the different sounds that went into the songs and just sort of, you know, make something themselves. You don't want someone coming in and some hired gun coming in. And if that happens to maybe not as many as as severe a degree as that, but it does happen a lot. The music business, it's music. This is the first word, right? And then business. The business is there to support the music. And it sometimes ends up the other way. There's a book in this. There's you telling your story. But would you have any interest in that? I suppose the memories are hazy, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) I'm giving myself a bad billion. I haven't actually smoked a joint for about eight or nine years now. Don't drink either. It's no fun at all now. <laughs> and you've completely walked away from the music business now. So you've sold up in terms of Independiente. It's no more. Yeah. So I was I sold Independiente in 2018. I'm really lucky. So I've got this lovely wife who didn't work and stayed and raised the kids. And when I'm running around touring around the world, she just kept everything rolling forwards. And now our kids are old enough to have left home. She's a fashion designer. So, so that she's got enough focus to just create what she wants to create. I sort of run that for her. You know, I say run it, but I try and add logic into the strange world of fashion. I'm not a fashionable bloke myself, to be honest, but there are certain things that are very, you know, it's just business, isn't it? Really. But it's also working with creatives again, isn't it? It's that thing it's of actually thing. that, yeah. It's a yeah. relationship. I mean, I've always had, generally when it's worked well, there's been someone you just like what they do and you like the person and 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 you fight their corner in the in the ways where you can make an impact i think you know whether it's going yeah let's back that with a tv advertising campaign or make sure that journalist doesn't get near near again whatever whatever it is just to make it a cause it's creative stuff i mean creativity is like really finely balanced i think you know you could it could it's this brilliant thing and when it's flowing well that's you know, those are great markers in, in human culture, really. And they, it can be, it's like a little spinning top. And if someone blows on one side where they shouldn't, the whole thing can go tits up. 
Yeah, one comment, and then suddenly the whole thing claps because it's so fragile, and it's so, yeah. and you've got to you've got to support it and let it breathe and grow it without trampling all over it, right? Yeah, exactly that. You know, I think I mean I've always figured that the best songwriters have a facility somewhere just to plug into things in a slightly larger and more profound way. You know, the things that people empathise with in the Harry Gray song has been born out of really empathising with something, whether it's grieving something or feeling exultant about something, and I think. They capture those moments and express them either through a musical phrase or through lyrics or through the phrasing of a vocal, whatever it is. And it just is done so well, so exquisitely that it just sticks with human beings who hear it. You know, I think that's what great musicians and great writers do. They capture the really important stuff and send it out there so it lasts for forever, you know. This has been such a joy, such a treat. And I know the listeners to the podcast are going to feel the same way. I have two final questions for you. So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council or solo. What would you go with? Ah, oh, do you know what? I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't pick one. I honestly couldn't. There's so many. If you asked me to say, give me 30 or 40. <laughs> honestly. Well, go um, on. What's in your head? Come on. <laughs> well, you know. You're the first person who's allowed 30 songs. Songs amazing, Changing Man's amazing, In the City, all around the world. I mean, just, you know, give me 30 or 40 shots, please. <laughs> so many good ones. You do some amazing, incredible song. What would you ask if, as soon as this interview's over, this conversation's over, what would you go and ask Alexa to play you? Um, what would I ask Alexa to play me? I would. I'd go for Wildwood. I love Wildwood. There's just something, it's the way it just creeps in very gently. It's, it's a beautiful introduction to a song. I, I love that song very much. Um, but then I'd ask it to play a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> now, Andy, the purpose of this podcast is to meet people like yourselves who's had this, and I've got a big old list, like I say, but the people like yourselves who've had these connections with Paul Weller, they could be band members, friends, family, hugely yeah. influential people, record bosses, all of you. I want all of you on the podcast. But the reason I created this podcast, I don't know if I've told you this, the reason I created this podcast was for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. It's my one big regret from giving up my life as a radio presenter that I didn't interview well. If it happens, I created a podcast. That's the only reason I created a podcast. <laughs> if it happens, what should... they will come, right? Well, that's fingers crossed. If it happens, what should I ask him, Andy? Um, I, I just have a lot of love in my heart for the guy. He's a really excellent person, and it's been it was just like a privilege to work with him for a period of time. And I have a little way of nudging him back off to do what he can do, showcase what he's got to the world, really. I would probably ask him, was there anything that we could have done better? But, you know, as a record company, were the things that we could have supported you in a better way? That would, I'd like to know that because that's the drive of it, really. I can remember one thing. There was you, there was a period of time where the charts committee for records used to have insane rules. Like you could either, you couldn't give a t-shirt away, you could give something away. And it's when people were getting a little bit over commercial with things, different formats, et cetera, et cetera. And there was, I forget which album it was. And it came out and previously there'd been a rule that allowed you to put sort of fan, uh, you know, artists, Postcards inside. Uh, yeah, I think this was Heavy Soul. Was this not Heavy Soul, I think? Yeah. Might have been, yeah. And somehow, someone in our marketing department had missed the memo that it had been changed from, you could put five po- or four postcards, I think it was, and you could now put three because it's seen as being an extra freebie and in, in, inducement, which it isn't really. I mean, it's like, a, it's just another nice little thing around the record, right? They'll buy the record if they like it. 
And so, so basically, Paul's records, the best record of that week, and probably a few weeks afterwards, came out, sold enough to go to number one. But there were maybe fifteen or 20,000 sales were disqualified because there was one extra postcard attached to it. And I can remember thinking, oh, Christ, fucking hell. How, that, how the hell did that happen? And do you know what? This speaks volumes of him. He came in the following day to the office and just said, don't worry about it. Eyes on the prize. Let's keep pushing forwards. Wouldn't be great if it happened again, but let's, you know. And he came in and basically let everyone off the hook. Which is that it's a proper grown up way to behave, right? You know, because he, you know, it's not badly intentioned. It's just a really, I'm not to say unforgivable, it's like a major error. Yeah, it was the difference between number two and number one. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, but I think that's great. I mean, I don't think he defined, you know, if he knows the work's good and the people are good. But I thought that was lovely. I thought that was just as a humanistic thing mm. to come in and go, like, these things happen, shit happens, eyes on the prize, let's really make up for it, you know? No, I mean, everyone loved that so much at the label. Everyone was like, that's, that's, a, that's a really kind, proper, nice thing to do. That's a great question. It's also interesting because he's now, the last couple of albums, he's been back at Polydor again. So it's gone full yeah. circle and yeah, obviously yeah, a different yeah. management and all that, right? But that bond or that relationship, it seems very different now, that, that relationship between record boss and an artist across the, because the industry has changed so much. But it's still important that you have the backing of a good record label, right? Yeah, I think so. Because if you've got that unique talent, it's like, I don't know, maybe I did smoke too much weed in those days, but I always used to visualize the way that the music business is. The, the elevated stuff is going on up here, and that's writing and playing and producing. It's the actual creation of the music itself. And everything else is underneath supporting it. You know, keeping this stuff going and allowing it to look as far as it can and just be, be really unbridled and passionate and just, you know, to express the great stuff. And it shouldn't be where record companies look down and think, oh, this, I can, I can try that. We'll try this band. We'll try that band. And sort of plucking out these musicians, that whole, it goes back to that, that phrase that I heard in the first two months of being in the music business. You got to learn musicians know fucking nothing. It was just, it was so like, whoa, you know, oh, that's just, well, that's all wrong. Yeah. You know? I love the fact that's the match that lights this entire story. Isn't it? It's a spark. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. And it's, you know, you don't sound like you're, you know, of yourself about it, but I think it's so important. It's so, so important that it's, it's allowed to come out. Life is a lot better with great music, you know, and it will. It's this, one of the main things I look back at. Like, you look back over the span of your life and you measure it by music. It's a cliche to say it, but it's just this incredibly beautiful thing that, that goes along when you wake up in the morning, it's there and you can access it whenever you want. And it's an, it's an, it's an extraordinary medium for expressing things, right? Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. No, it's been a pleasure, Dan. Sorry, I took a while to get there. Oh, no, no, man. Honestly, this has been a, such a joy. Thank you so much for your time. Really do appreciate it, man. You take care. I hope, I hope you get the interview with Paul. <laughs> Bless you. Thank yeah. you, Andy. Take care, Dan. Well, there you go. How about that? I mean, that's going to be difficult to top, right? the magnificent Andy McDonald on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. What a legend. If you want to read more, find out more, you can dig into the show notes for this episode of the podcast. Just go to my website. It's paulwellerfanpodcast.com. I've written a little blog there as well. Covered off those key releases, the singles, the albums on Go Discs and on Independiente, and even the couple of DVD releases that came out on that latter label as well. Dig in. 
paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And whilst you're there on my website, do head to the store. You can find our official merchandise. I'd love to see pictures of you with your mugs. Get involved. And if you fancy it, you can also support the podcast financially with a virtual coffee. It's only three quid. Sign up for one or you can subscribe. I'm on holiday at the minute, so I haven't got all of these to hand. So I'll do some more on the next episode of the podcast. Okay. Hi, Sarah Kane. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Says, love what you're doing with this podcast. Listening in the US, an old mod here. The jam changed my world in 1980 when I first encountered sound effects. But I've loved all of Paul Weller's incarnations. Every episode takes me down an awesome musical rabbit hole. Keep the faith. Hey, Sarah, thanks. Lovely to have you on board. She posted on Facebook, actually. I must read this to you because it's made me laugh. She posted on Facebook. She said, though I was a little wary at first, (laughs) right? This is a great podcast if you're at all a Paul Weller fan, whatever era. Maybe you just like, love a band or musician that has worked with him or was influenced by him. I think a lot of you know the jam changed my world in 1980 when I first encountered sound effects and couldn't stop dancing to it in the Barclay Tower Records. As devastated as I was when the jam broke up, I survived. Hey, I was 15 when they broke up. I was allowed to be devastated. And I've loved all of Paul Weller's incarnations. Love it. Check it out if you haven't yet. The Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Sarah. She said, the desperately seeking Paul, it sounded a bit desperate, but your sincerity and genuineness won me over. And the guests, I've learned so much from this podcast, and I haven't even heard of half of them. I don't want it to end. (laughs) Ah, Sarah, thank you so much for your message. Love it. Hey, look, you can get involved. We'll do more messages on next week's podcast get involved just head to my website paulwellerfanpodcast.com you can tweet at wellerfanpod actually it's not twitter is it you're xing now i don't know anyway that thing you can get in touch there you can also find us on facebook instagram and threads and now i don't really know what that is either paulwellerfanpodcast.com thanks for listening i'll see you next time